Uh, it's a great day to open the Word and answer a really, really good question. It's the question of the place of God's moral law in the life of a believer, uh, in particular a New Testament believer. Um, the question was raised uh, in our comment section yesterday. It's a good question that we have we have spoken to in some manner or fashion uh, a number of times uh, 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 over over the while we've been posting, and uh, it's one that we're going to talk about quite a bit when we start our study in the Book of Romans. Um, but uh, the the term that was used in the question that was raised is the term antinomianism. Uh, it sounds like a big theological term, but it essentially just simply means this. It's the idea that if someone is saved by God's grace, that he has no moral obligation to the moral law. After all, we're saved by grace. Paul says we can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Um, you know, where we're, we're sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Therefore, if we're covered by grace, it's not by our works, then... Um, then, then we, you know, we have no real obligation to the moral law. Um, so I, th I thought, you know, it's good, to, since it was raised again, it's good to kind of talk about it again, um, if for no other reason than to introduce you to the word antinomianism. Um, it's, and and I, I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek, but, but the truth of the matter is, is that when we, when we see big words like that, uh, it can be valuable to know the definitions of them because you don't have to necessarily spell out everything it means when you're talking about it. You can just use the word and ultimately it conveys the ideas. So it's, it's a value to kind of expand our vocabulary that way, uh, especially in theological terms and that kind of thing. So, but anyway, let's talk about the, the issue. Um, uh, let me invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. There are many places from which we could start a discussion like this. This is just one of many. Again, the book of Romans, this topic will be uh, either explicit or implicitly um, covered throughout the book. Book of Galatians, another place. Um, I would even argue that uh, a proper understanding of, of the Gospels uh, would help us understand this. Um, this is an important question that we want to make sure we understand because to end on one end of the spectrum where we believe that our righteousness really does depend on our, our works, whether it's uh, achieving a right standing with God by our works or whether it's maintaining our right standing by our works, that produces a level of legalism that, um, that, that creates fear and, and, uh, and never allows us to have a sense of peace uh, in, in relation to our relationship with God. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those that, again, if we take an antinomian perspective, the idea is that we don't have any sense of importance of, of, uh, of following God's standards because we're covered by God's grace. And so that being said, it's worth taking some time to really kind of understand the place of law and grace in regard to the believer. And I would argue that this is true of believers in the Old and New Covenant. So that being said, again, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's look at verse 17. Again, this is just one of many passages we could start with and could go to. Um, but let's look at this one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that last statement alone um, answers a, a big question here. One of the questions that is raised 
is, is our righteousness, and this is extremely fundamental, um, is our righteousness something that we achieve, or is it something that is given to us, or to use another theological term, is it imputed to us? Uh, is it something that is given to us? Well, I think, I think the answer to that question is, is stated here in this passage. Again, he made him who knew no sin, referring obviously to Christ, to become sin or to be sin on our behalf or with our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he took, there's this, this breathtaking transaction that took place. Jesus took our sin upon himself in his humanity. He came into the world in the incarnation, in human flesh, another extremely important element of the Christian faith, that Jesus came in the flesh. Why? Because he would take our sins upon himself and shed his own blood on our behalf, that having done so, he would pay our debt that we owe. That should have been us on the cross. It was our debt. We, we deserve that. But he who knew no sin took our sin upon himself and then gave us his righteousness. Now, this is appropriated by faith. We see this in, uh, I'll invite you to turn right to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, a passage, again, that we've quoted many times, but it never, uh, it's never a bad idea to go back to it. Romans, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Okay? It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, it is not of yourself, it is not of works. It is his gift, so that no one may boast. The idea is that we will never be able to stand before God and, and say, we did it, we made it, we earned it. Where's my seat at the table? Uh, never. And the fact that the scriptures make this so clear is so important for us, because entire denominations uh, exist based on the opposite of what Paul just said there. And, and, and of course, when you bring these, uh, for example, I grew up Catholic, and, and uh, you, are, you are not saved by grace through faith alone. Uh, your merits do weigh into your salvation. Uh, hence, ideas like purgatory and things like this that are, that are part of that theology. Uh, and when that's brought up, when the idea of what Paul has said is brought up, there are lots of sort of theological gymnastics that are done to try and sort of still make their version of it fit in, even though Paul said something very different than what they believe. But that's why I say it's so important to recognize how absolutely crystal clear this concept is in Scripture. As a matter of fact, uh, one other passage that it's, it's, it's kind of impossible for me not to quote in tandem with the passage in Ephesians is found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Uh, you probably have never heard me quote one without the other because they really do, uh, they, they really are connected concepts. Um, verse 21, and of course, as always, read the entire chapters, make sure you understand the context and all that. Don't just take my word for it. Uh, read the passages in their entirety. We just sort of look at a passage for time's sake. But again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, uh, it's, it's, it's not of works, it's not, you know, it's, it's the gift of God, right? Verse 21 of chapter 2 in Galatians, Paul says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died needlessly or for nothing or in vain. There was no purpose in his dying for us if we could, in fact, earn it. Um, I know I've said this a couple times. I'll probably say it a few times more. But in the book of Romans, we are going to go a long way in explaining these ideas. 
Um, but for our, for our purposes today in answering the question, is the righteousness of God earned or achieved? Is it maintained by our works and these kinds of things? Or is it something that is given to us and it remains ours because it is God's gift to us? Um, the answer is very, very clear. It is not achieved. It is not earned. It is imputed. It is given. Uh, that, that wickedness and, and unrighteousness that we wore before was taken off of us and put on Christ. And like a garment, he gives us this new righteousness that was never ours to begin with. It was his. In other words, his righteousness is now upon us. That is staggering. And, and that, that alone is something worth, you know, when you're done here, just take a few minutes and think that through for a little bit. It's not that he just sort of gave us, you know, a better righteousness than ours, you know, in some way that we could measure in degrees. It is immeasurable. It is his righteousness that has been given to us. Why? Because that is the righteousness that is required to be in right standing with the Father. And it is one that we could never attain. So when it comes to questions of the law, well, what purpose did the law serve? Well, again, Galatians, if we kept reading from where we were in chapter 2 and kept going into chapter 3, we see Paul make the argument that the, righteous, uh, the, uh, the law was given not as a means of earning salvation, but rather as sort of a, a means of, of helping us to, real, to understand two basic things. One, the law was given to help us understand that we can't keep it. The sheer number of laws should have made it uh, abundantly clear how ludicrous it would be to think that we could. Uh, you know, we say, well, it's the Ten Commandments. It's not just the Ten Commandments. There were 613 commandments. Uh, some were civil, some were religious, but that constituted the law of God. Uh, on top of that, the prophets, other, you know, the, the further revelation given through the prophets in that. If we consider the Old Testament to be God's standard um, uh, of righteousness, it is so abundantly clear that it's impossible to keep, or it should be. Clearly, that was not the case in the Old Testament, especially when it came to that period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a period of time where the Pharisees, the sect of the Pharisees, arose. Uh, the Pharisees who were custodians of the law of God and the, and the faith of Israel, ultimately, uh, uh, and even if we argue that they had good intentions in starting, which I'm willing to do, um, during that intertestamental period where there was the danger of the faith ultimately, you know, fading, fading away, uh, the Pharisees took it upon themselves to make sure that it was maintained in purity. However, in their efforts to maintain it in purity, they ultimately uh, distorted it and clouded it by adding additional writings and teachings that were given in order to not just help people keep the law, but also to help them not break the law. Uh, hence things like, um, you know, the scene in the Gospels where Jesus heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are watching this because they want to see if he will heal on the Sabbath, or what is implied there is if he will violate the Sabbath. And of course, he does heal the man, but he stops before he does and he asks the man, you know, is it better to do good or evil on the Sabbath? And of course, they don't answer because they don't want to be accountable to answer such questions. And so Jesus heals the man's hand, because he's, and in doing so, he points out the ludicrous nature of the traditions, the writings, of course, I'm referring to things like the Talmudic writings, the Mishnah, and other things that were given, um, ex extensive writings that were given to help people keep and not violate the law. Jesus would eventually condemn them for holding on par with the Word of God, these traditions, uh, and, and he condemned them for doing so. So the law, in its first purpose, was given to help us realize that we couldn't keep it. It was impossible. Literally, from the day of its giving, it was impossible. Um, 
But the other thing, just as importantly, is that it was intended to keep us walking on a straight line, like a schoolmaster teaching us the right way, so that we would go the right way, so that when the Messiah came, when Jesus came, we would recognize him, we would turn our trust to him. Uh, this, was, this was the reason why Jesus came first to his people. Of course, he knew all things, but the idea that he came to his own was basically to allow them that first shot at seeing like, oh, this is the one that the scriptures were pointing us toward. This is the one whose, whose footprints are throughout the Old Testament. This is the one who has come to save us from the predicament of our inability to keep the law. The, different, the problem was is that but when Jesus came, at this point they had now, as a nation, under the leadership of, of the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, and, and the various teachers of the law, they had been so conditioned to think that their righteousness was based on their works. Paul, who himself was a Pharisee, is the one who ultimately clears that up. Um, so the righteousness of Christ is given to us, is imputed to us. So what? So do we have any connection? I, I, if I could reframe the concept of antinomianism, do we have a responsibility to the moral law? The word responsibility can become kind of tricky because on the one hand, Paul said that all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify or build up or are profitable. In other words, I can't outsin the grace of God because it is true, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Um, and so, as a believer, it is possible for me to have freedom in Christ to live my life as I would. Paul would say, what will separate me from the love of God in Christ? These are really, really broad statements. These are uncomfortably broad statements and they raise the issues that we're dealing with here. However, Paul also said that since grace has abounded, should we sin all the more so that grace might abound all the more, Romans 6. And he goes on to answer his own kind of rhetorical question, but just to make sure that it's not answered the wrong way, he answers it. God forbid, let it never be so. In other words, it's, it's unthinkable that you would ever think that the right approach to grace is to just keep on sinning to prove how just broad God's grace really is. Let me demonstrate for you just how far God's grace will go. Paul found no contradiction in saying that he's, that all things are lawful for him, although not all things build up, and also to say, should we sin the more so the grace might abound the more? Of course not. The question here is one of maturity. The question of one is, is one of Christian growth. Uh, how can we, if we really understand the depth of our sin, and we understand what we were saved from, not just, oh, I was going to hell, and just sort of in this sort of clinical statement kind of a way, but if we understand that our best attempts at righteousness, to, to borrow from Isaiah, are like filthy rags, there is nothing that I bring to the table. My best attempt is nothing. Uh, Paul would say the same thing, talking about his righteousness as a Pharisee and his keeper of the law, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, all these things. All these things I count as rubbish. Why? Because they are, compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And in that statement, uh, I think, honestly, in that statement, I think, uh, gives us a lot of insight in how we should answer a question like this question of antinomianism. It shouldn't have to come to the question of, am I required to keep the law? The answer is no, right? Acts 15, um, the whole idea of understanding grace, if you add works to grace, it's no longer grace. In the strictest sense of the word, no, you're not required to keep the moral law. 
But is that really all there is to it? Do I, as a believer, understanding what I've been saved from, do I not want to, in response, it's important to point that out, in response to the grace of God, do I not want to live a life that pleases him? Again, Paul, when he talked about knowing Jesus, understanding his own righteousness was nothing. It was nothing he could bring to the table. He had to set aside his thinking on that, that he could never, ever earn it. But instead, he wanted to know him. And when Paul said, I want to know him, he's not saying, I just want to be saved. Paul was already saved for a couple of decades, maybe three decades by the time he wrote that. To know Christ, as he would go on to say, and the power of his resurrection, and also even being conformed to his death. In other words, whatever it takes to know him and to know him deeply, to know him well, that is my pursuit. That is my desire. That is my deepest longing. This is what a believer who understands uh, how unrighteous they are, how absolutely unmeritorious their righteous acts are, how completely lost they were, if not for Christ. If he who knew no sin had not come to take our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, we would be absolutely condemned to an eternity apart from him, suffering for the penalty of our own sin. So weighty and so important as it is to understand that. If we do, and by the way, this is why uh, gospel preaching is so important and thorough gospel preaching is so important. This is one of the reasons, and I, I, don't, I, I didn't really want to do this, I'm just going to briefly say it. But this is one of the reasons why so much of modern preaching and so much modern approach to church is so fluffy and useless. Because it never really deals with sin for what it actually is. It's much more about just improving yourself in some way. To sort of emphasizing the loving friendship and relationship with God, but never emphasizing on virtually any level the depth of the cost upon Christ in order to afford that to us. Uh, we think of God as a buddy, as a friend, as the big guy in the sky, and Jesus is our buddy, our co-pilot, and all that kind of thing. Uh, this essentially becomes um, the, the level of preaching and teaching on this subject so much nowadays. Um, you know, you think about a book like Living Your Best Life Now as if that had anything to do with the gospel. Um, these ideas are, are so far short of what the gospel is all about. And they're so far short of what the gospel is about because they never really touch on the heart of the gospel. We were devastatingly lost, absolutely hopelessly lost, apart from what Christ accomplished for us. We were hopeless, without hope. You remember the scene in Dante's Inferno as he, uh, as he is, is uh, uh, at the entrance of the seventh circle of hell in this kind of thing. It says, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It is about the most cryptic, frightening statement in all of literature. Uh, abandon all hope. You cross this threshold, there is no hope. Give up on the idea of hope. You are completely hopeless. Um, that sentiment exactly reflects our condition. And if we don't realize that, then we don't understand the depths of what Christ accomplished. Um, the fact that Paul in one statement could sum it up so well, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is a very straightforward but very simple statement to understand, but the depth of it must be understood. Um, and so when we do, 
the question of obligation, responsibility, it no longer is even seen that way. We're not obligated to the law in order to earn our righteousness. But am I really appreciating what I've been saved from and what I've been saved to? If I, if, if I do, then the question of my wanting to live in holiness is a no-brainer. Uh, as, as a believer growing in any level of maturity, and hopefully as an ongoing level of, uh, an ongoing increasing level of maturity, we don't have to wrestle with questions like antinomianism. I want to know him. I want to make sure that I am living a life that doesn't preclude me from knowing him as well as I could. I want to know him better today than I did yesterday, and tomorrow I want to know him even better than today. And like Paul, if that is in the power of the glorious power of his resurrection, or whether it is in uh, being conformed to his death, what did Jesus say? Take up your cross, die daily, and come follow me. This is what a disciple did, right? Now, when we think of disciples, we think of the disciples of, of Jesus, you know? But the idea of a disciple was not limited to followers of Christ. The idea of being a disciple of anybody uh, is, 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 is a concept that we can easily understand. We find a hero that we really uh, like, that we want to be like, we want to grow up like them, and all of us have them, right? Um, you know, whether you're in business, whether you're in sports, whatever it might be. Um, you know, there's the Olympics are on right now, and all, there's all these commercials that are speaking about inspiration of little boys and girls seeing their heroes, and they want to be like them when they grow up and this kind of thing. We understand the concept. What will those kids do in order to become that? They will eat a certain way. They will work out every day. They will practice the, the sport that they want to be great at. They will do all of these things um, for the sake of, of ultimately becoming like that. Well, when we apply that to our relationship with Christ as his disciples, we want to think like he thinks. We want to speak like he speaks. We want to love like he loves. We want to live like he lived because that's what disciples do. They want to emulate their master because they love their master. They admire him. They look up to him. They, they, they elevate him and they want to be everything like him. And so the question of, do I have any moral obligation? Those questions don't even really cross my mind anymore. Uh, I want to. Now, when it comes to the, the law, of course, we understand there's a theological place for the law in understanding Old Testament, Old Covenant theology. Um, it's not a matter of keeping just parts of the law. It's a matter of keeping all of the law. Well, clearly that, that, that came to an end, Acts 15. They have a council, the very first church council deals with this. Um, there is no longer an obligation to come through Moses in order to come to Christ. We understand that theologically. Um, maybe it would have been easy just to say that at the very beginning and not go through all this. But, um, but at the end of the day, our, our relationship with Christ should not just be based on a clinical analysis of, of the difference between law and grace. There needs to be an understanding of that. But that should then flower into a deep and uh, desire uh, to, to know him as best as possible. And so that being said, um, hopefully that answers the question in a meaningful way. Of course, we never answer it in an exhaustive way. How could we? The scriptures are replete with this. But I will say that, again, I'll invite you to join us as we begin our study in the book of Romans. Uh, may not happen this week after all, but uh, probably next week we'll take our first steps into that study. Um, um, and we will be talking about this topic, uh, again, implicitly and explicitly throughout the book. So that being said, hopefully that helps. And uh, I'll invite you, if you have any questions or comments, you can always leave them in the comment section below. And uh, 
Uh, if you want to learn more about our church at Calvary Chapel Franklin, you can go to our website, calvarychapelfranklin.com. If you want to go to my personal website, it's called parsonspad.com. And you can follow, you watch these same videos there. You can also email me from there as well. You can also subscribe to the audio podcast as well, which uh, uh, these same video podcasts are posted as audio as well. So thanks for watching. May the Lord bless and keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you uh, forever. And so, Father, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you. What can we begin to say in response to your grace toward us? What can we say uh, that would ever begin to even scratch the surface on the depth of the love and the grace and the mercy that you've shown us in Christ, who, uh, knowing no sin, being absolutely perfect, nonetheless became sin with our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, Father, help us to not live so close to the fence in our lives where we just feel like, you know, a certain amount of sin's okay because I'm covered by grace and that kind of thing, but rather help us to flee that line entirely and rather run into the arms of Jesus, seeking to follow him like a disciple would, to fall more deeply in love with him every single day, that we would learn to be more and more like him and that the Holy Spirit would continue to refine us and draw us closer and to bring to the surface those things that, uh, that, that restrain us from knowing him as well as we might, and help us to willingly let those things go when the Holy Spirit brings them to the surface. Uh, sanctify us, further set us apart in more and more into the image of Christ. Father, we do pray that we would not fall into the trap of legalism where we think that we're holding on to our salvation because of our, our righteous deeds and such, but instead to recognize this is the gift that you have given us and our lives living in holiness are a response to that. A worthy response, certainly, it's our call to live lives that reflect Christ. But certainly, Lord, we would never want to digress into thinking that that's what keeps us saved. How could it? It could never save us before. How could it keep us uh, there? How could we, having begun in the Spirit, truly be made perfect in the flesh? Father, we thank you that you love us, you've got us in your hands, the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption, and that you've called us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, not because if we don't, we'll fall out, but because by doing so, we come to know you better and better. And we honor you all the more greatly in doing so. So help our motivations to be pure. Help our activities that grow from those, meditation, uh, those, uh, um, those motivations. And help our witness because of those motivations. Um, just rightly express you in your glory. Uh, rightly per, uh, express the gospel in its purity. And ultimately bring you glory. So we thank you, Father. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.